Well, welcome everybody to Marketing Management and Money. This is the podcast, All Things Small Business, with Ryan Murray and Ethan Migliori. So we just did an episode where I kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit onto one of my personal ventures of developing a uh, board game that uh, I'm going to be releasing, hopefully, fingers crossed, in a, in a few months. And so I'm kind of excited for the uh, episode where I get to talk about the launch of that. I think that'll be a fun episode. But we left off last time with kind of some uh, loose ends. Um, we did. You know. Because we were... When we talked about business innovation, I mean, it was, there's just so much to it. There is. And so um, from that discussion, I think we felt it best to maybe explore it a little bit more and uh, maybe put some concrete stuff to it. And and, and I think in this episode, I'm going to try and steer away from my personal experience and try and get more into kind of a business example. Uh, So I'll be using other examples from, you know, things that I've read, experiences that I've had, uh, not so much things that I'm doing. And, uh, and so hopefully, uh, this will be a little bit more targeted to, you know, business uh, in general, not necessarily just a specific, hey, this is how to uh, go through a uh, board game launch. (laughs) (laughs) Hypothetically speaking. (laughs) So, right. so I don't know. Do you, do you have something you want to kick off with? or uh? I don't. Where do you want to start? Well, okay. I actually have something I do want to kick off. I was okay. just being polite, hoping you would defer <laughs> back to me. <laughs> so uh, I started putting some thought into this, and I really wanted to quantify this. And I'm going to quantify it, but not as tightly as I wanted to, because I don't think it can be quantified that tightly. This is what I'm going with. So... The whole idea of the previous episode, and if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and check it out because it's going to make a lot more sense uh, what we're talking about here. But regardless, we're talking about this idea of innovation. When is it time to call it quits uh, and just recognize that, hey, this is not a good idea. We've gone too far down the rabbit hole. You know, we're chasing squirrels, whatever, whatever kind of analogy you want to throw out there. And the first thing that I want to put out there is... When in doubt, and this is my philosophy here, when in doubt, push way too far is so much better than cutting off early. So going down the rabbit hole farther than you think you should and then going a little bit farther, I think is a much better strategy than cutting off too early. Now, I wanted to quantify this. I wanted to put some data behind this because I didn't want it to just be my opinion. And this is a tricky one to get some data behind because, you know, everyone who succeeded will tell you, you got to keep going, you know, and everyone who pulled out said, oh, we saved so much money. We dodged a bullet on that one. And, And so, you know, how do you how do you quantify this one? So I decided to go back to. It's a classic business, uh, and business is maybe not the the right word, but it's a classic book, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, uh, written back in 1937. So I want to put some context to this, because a lot of people look at that and they're like, whoa, that's almost 100 years old. Is it still relevant today? And this is what I'm going to state about the relevancy of this book, is that so many self-help, building wealth, uh, you know, business books, they took 
principles from Napoleon Hill and they just, you know, modernized them or updated them for business practices today. But a lot of the principles that he covers, they're still in force, still quality information. I highly recommend the book. I've read it multiple times because uh, I think there's a lot of gems in there. There is some stuff in there that I'm like, yeah, that's not exactly accurate. Uh, maybe I'm just biased his thing on wearing your hat too tight makes you bald i don't wear a lot of hats <laughs> maybe you wore too many hats maybe i did <laughs> that one time i was wearing that hat super tight you know. so you know i mean there is some stuff that's a little bit 1930s yeah. uh you know american lifestyle but the context is really great so in his uh in his thing he references three feet from gold uh, which was another uh, another yeah. work that was written at that time. And it's this whole idea of this guy who was trying to find gold, and he was digging, 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 and he ended up stopping. He sold all of the equipment, and he uh, sold it to this junk man. And the junk man, he went and found uh, someone who, a uh, geologist? Yeah. Is that am I am I getting my my correct profession here? Found a geologist who understood fault lines and told him where to dig. Three feet later, a huge find of, of gold. And, and so, so where I'm trying to quantify this thing, I think the concept of three feet uh, from gold is really a good reference point of hey, are we stopping three feet from gold? Because you know, big breakthroughs. Are frustrating. There is a point where you're like, I'm an idiot. I am burning bridges over this. I'm wasting money. Why am I doing this? Uh, you know, and and we we have to push through those moments. Uh, but when you talk about that, so I I get to play the flip side of this coin. Okay, okay. Because this is what makes this interesting here. At some point in time, when when your resources run out, you can't push three feet more. Okay, I'm, I'm going to counter that with, do your resources run out? So I, I ran cross country in high school a little bit into college. And I remember one of the ways that they, uh, that they always told us of how we needed to train or race, I should say race better. They said that you need to race uh, to where you, you know, a mile into it, you need to feel like you can only go five more steps. And then five steps later, five more steps. And then five steps later, five more steps. And if you look at any, um, any athlete that is doing, you know, like speed or strength, right. we know for a fact that your body can do significantly more than you think it can do. And so I am going to push back and say your business can do significantly more than you think it can do and your resources. And so this is where I want to get clear what we consider resources. And this is so when your money runs out, right? Are you, you know, are you leveraging your network? Are you leveraging your skill set? Are you leveraging your experience? Because a lot of times we're like, "Oh, I'm out of money," or we're we're foolish with our money. We push too much on the money side of things and we ignore the other resources that we have. So I agree with you when your money runs out, you know, you need to be smart about your money and not put yourself in a dumb financial position. But have you really pushed your network? Have you really pushed your you own personal skill set? You tapped into all the resources versus just one. Yeah. Because that's not your, 
That's an interesting point because that's commonly what happens is we exhaust one resource um, at the expense of others, even though we have reserves in the other resources. But when all of a sudden you lose that one resource, um, it can be, it, it can shut you down, even though you might have other ones. But if you could equalize them out, you probably could allow those resources to go farther. And, and I'm also going to push on this. So, you know, you coach tennis. Yeah. And I'm sure that you have players that have a killer serve, but that's it. It's like, okay, your serve is amazing, but you've got to learn some, you know, some volley technique, some footwork. Uh, you've yeah. got to learn some strategy on the court, some positioning. And, and, that's right. You know, and, and so if you're a single trick player, you just, as soon as they uncover that one skill set and you have no depth, you're in trouble. That's right. So, so I, I am going to say that for okay. me, the first thing is, uh, you know, if you're going to, and I'll, I'll get to another thing, but I, I don't, I don't want to jump to that yet. But if you're going to push innovation, you've got to push harder than you think you can push. And you should have that mindset on the front end and be ready to go in deep and push hard and go further than you think you should go. Um, but I do want to talk about, you know, at what point do we cut it off? But I don't want to talk about that just yet. Okay. Um, but anyway, that's that's kind of my point number one is, you know, it's, it's better to go too far than too short. And too far will, it, it'll squeeze you. It, it'll, it'll be tough. Yes, it will. <laughs> <clears throat> Especially because as your resources get low, that's a scary feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think I'm kind of on a little bit of a tangent here. So if I'm doing a, uh, you know, if I'm doing a, a, a startup uh, business and I've, you know, invested my own cash, okay, there's a lot of risk there. But if I'm in a business and I've invested my own cash, uh, you know, and I, and I can't make payroll, like, right. I'm no longer right. just risking my resources. Right. I'm now risking the livelihood of other people who I don't think they necessarily said, hey, I want to do this big innovation. Yeah. Well, and that's, but when you get into situations like that, the challenge that you have is now there's other legal ramifications with not making payroll, right? <laughs> so it's, it goes from resources now into uh, laws and regulations, which when you start pursing some of those ramifications can can really be detrimental to company that are well outside of your resources. Yeah. All right. So another point that I want to make, uh, and we're talking about when you're doing, you know, like an innovation and talking about the resources that you have, the other people that are starting to get involved, I want to sum this up with kind of a bigger point, and then we can talk about some of the specifics uh, within this point. But And this is a Stephen Covey point. So if you've done seven habits, uh, begin with the end in mind. And, and it's not unique to Stephen Covey, but he really did a right. great job of putting that into perspective, of this idea of, of yeah. you know, we need to understand where all of these unintended consequences are going. Uh, if you play chess, uh, I love chess for discovered moves, like trying to teach kids unintended consequences. Right. 
You know, if you can teach them discovered moves in chess, it's a great way for them to see, oh my goodness, you know, I moved my bishop. I didn't realize that that now exposed my king. And, right. you know, because I didn't move my king. So why, you know, why would that, you know, be an issue? Well, and on that same point, just a, a little nugget out there for the listeners, Joel Barker has what's called an implication will that it looks at that based around business decisions. And so if you want to understand that more from a business perspective, go look up Joel Barker's implication will. Yeah. And so, you know, some great resources out there. But the concept is this to say, if I'm going to go and do an innovation, a lot of people will kind of forecast the money out there. And almost every forecast that I've ever seen, including ones that I do, are wrong. It is so hard to forecast. And so I look at like building material. And, you know, when you go to put flooring in, and they always tell you, well, you got to buy, you know, 20% more than, you know, so if you're going to do a, you know, waste. Yeah, if you're going to do a 200 square foot floor, you got to buy 240 square foot, you know, feet right. worth of material. And everyone looks at that and they're just like, no, I don't need that. I'm like, yes, you, yes, do. you do. The professionals are maybe getting it down to, <clears throat> you know, like only 10% waste, but, you know, there's 30% waste. And that's a pretty straightforward calculation. You know, that's, yeah. I, I'm looking at exactly how big the floor is. I know how much material I need. I know what method I'm going to, so if I was innovating something, you know, I'm going to have significantly more waste. And so, you know, first off on the capital side, if I'm going to begin with the end in mind, I'm going to look at the waste. You, you know, that's fascinating because most people do not, in the construction world, they always build contingencies into it. Mm. But uh, when you start, start talking about marketing or manufacturing, manufacturing, sometimes they'll build contingencies into it. But on other things like professional services, they never build a contingency into anything. Yeah. Whether that, when you do that, that, so that's an interesting. And, and in my experience, people, the way they forecast is they forecast as though they've already dialed in the process. Right. You that's know, right. Like manufacturing. Okay. You know, I only want to have this much waste in manufacturing in terms of direct labor or, you know, scrap or, you know, the other wastes that get into a manufacturing process. And so they'll look at it and they'll say, okay, you know, this is how much I want. Right. And I, I'm like, no, you, you got to factor in huge amounts of waste. So to the point that I'm going to advise a double or triple of your forecast, which well, but can even, be huge. But going back to your first point, if, um, if you're building contingencies into the innovation, then when you finally need to go that extra three feet in the mm-hmm. example you used, a lot of times you can tap into that contingency to make that happen without being overly stressed. But if you didn't budget for the contingencies in the beginning, well, and then you're, you're always going to come up short. And, and, and this is a good example of, you know, okay, when you said tap into that contingency, that's a really smart way to do it because sometimes people think, okay, if I'm going to estimate that for this project, I need $60,000, right? Yeah. It's a $60,000 project that we're going to do. And I'm saying double that and have $120,000. And you're like, but now I'm tying up $60,000 of cash. And I'm like, no, you're not tying up. That cash needs to be available. But while you're waiting for it, it can be in a liquid investment. That's right. 
You know, so you could still be getting three, four percent on that cash. That's right. So, so you don't have to be wasting the cash. And and then if you only end up, you know, the project comes in at ninety thousand, you're good because you've got, you know, so liquid cash. Let's explore contingencies for a minute because this is an interesting point that we rarely talk about. And when you talk about innovation inside of innovation, mm. innovation inside of the innovation, if you're trying to do that, that sounds kind of weird to say, but <laughs> it, it does. I think you need to clarify that a little to, bit. <laughs> um, but because most people do not build contingencies into it and or the right contingencies, for instance, if I have money, it's, it's a little bit easier to set aside money into a reserve account where it's sitting as a contingency. But all of a sudden, if I need a labor contingency, I don't know that I want to hire three new people right now in order to meet the labor. But if I knew and I had the right milestones in place as indicators, then I would know, okay, that triggered the hiring of this new person that I need to hire to meet the contingency, right? Mm -hmm. And or now that I've met this milestone, that means that this position either needs to transition into something else or unfortunately... It dissolves, right? Mm-hmm. Is that contingency? But, but so when you look at all the factors involved in that one, the contingencies for each one could be different, but just as critical. So, this is one that I did want to get to, and I'm glad that you brought it up. Is the labor contingency? So I've seen this happen a lot in businesses. They'll take someone. Okay, let's go with the standard forty-hour work week. Now, first off, when you get into innovation, that forty-hour work week kind of goes out the window a little yes, bit. Does. But for simplistic, you know, explanation here, I want to keep it to a forty-hour work week. In our minds, if we have a key employee, you know, like I've got an engineer who's developing something, you know, let's say a software engineer. Right? I've got a software engineer. They're developing a new software for the company. That's the innovation that we're going after. Right, And this software engineer currently spends 20 hours a week in existing business applications. You know, they, they, they're keeping up on our existing software. Uh, you know, they're troubleshooting, uh, working with clients, whatever they're doing. Right? And they're doing 20 hours a week. And I think to myself, well, I've got capacity with this employee. The mistake that we make is we say, I've got 20 hours of capacity. And it's like 20 plus 20 equals 40. They work 40 hours for me. And that's what they think happens. But what really happens is when they're working 20 hours, they still need downtime, planning time, uh, right. waste, you know, like if you have a 40 hour employee, I guarantee they're not efficiently working 40 hours. They might be efficiently working 36 or 38 hours. So I've got mm-hmm. two hours of waste. And what's that waste? It's them at the water cooler, you know, getting a cup of coffee, chatting with the coworkers. It's them, you know, booting up their computer or the computer crashed. And so now they have You're to right. sit there and, you know, or they got an email notification. They're like, oh, I better take care of this really quick. And it really wasn't an important notification but it still sidetracked them. And so there's waste that that happens. And it's really like if you try and work your people 40 hours for the 40 hours you're paying them, you will burn them out. You might get it for a short period of time. Well, um, (laughs) too many squirrels. Because I just, no, I just read a study that was fascinating that they were looking at the relationship of productivity to the number of hours that an individual works. And 
Um, an average person, if they're, if they're working 30 hours a week, they're almost 100% effective. Mm-hmm. Okay. At 35 hours, they become 80% effective. And at 100 or at 40 hours, um, it drops down to like 70 or 75% effective. Right. You, you lose that productivity. So, so if you start saying, all right, I'm going to work my people overtime so we get more done, the efficiency actually goes down even more to, mm-hmm. where, to where for like every, ah, I wish I could remember then. Numbers, darn it. Maybe we need to do an episode on... (laughs) (laughs) This is just going to be the episode that never dies. (laughs) Because, no, it's super interesting that we, you know, especially in blue-collar jobs, you know, you always always hear that, I want to see elbows all greasy, you know what I mean? Oh, Uh, yeah. I don't ever want to see anyone at the water cooler type stuff. Mm -hmm. But the crazy thing about that is, is that the more you try to drive people to work harder, the greater the efficiencies become. Yes, which now even bodes stronger for the argument that overtime loses significantly more value because your inefficiencies go down when it comes to labor. You don't, they're, they're getting things done, but it, they you know, they're only 40% effective. Mm-hmm. So because you, of exhaustion, mind straying, burned well, out. Every time you shift gears. So, you know, right now we're talking about, you know, innovation and efficiencies, if all of a sudden we wanted to talk about balance sheet ratios, it would take each of us a minute to get into it. It'd be like, okay, wait a second. Right. I got to think about this. And, and we don't recognize that that shifting gears is, you know, it's inefficient, but it is. And so this is something that, you know, good management is you got to look at how often are you asking your people to shift gears versus how often are you allowing right. them to finish tasks, um, which is another episode. And we're not going right. to chase that squirrel here. Yeah. But um, the the other thing that I want to point out, and this is another mistake that I've seen a lot of businesses make, and that is when someone is not pushed to the max. So if you think about this, I like mm-hmm. to do a lot of weight training, strength training, and if you ask me to lift the max that I can do, then I have to really prep up for it. I have to, you know, right. warm up. I have to, you know, get my muscles ready for it. Mentally, I have to be able to do it. And then when I'm done, whoo, man, that was a lot. But if you ask me to do like 80% of what I can do, I'll go down, you know, I'll do my workout. Uh, and at the end of the workout, you'll be like, how was your workout? I'm like, it was a good workout, but, you know, like I, I still feel fresh. It was only a 20% drop. Yeah. And so the point that I'm trying to make is when you have employees that are below capacity, so they're, they're putting in 30 hours of quality work and they're a 40-hour, you know, employee. Right. That 10 hours of downtime makes them feel like they actually have 50 hours of downtime because they're like, my job's so easy. I just come in, I check a couple emails, yeah, I, I meet with a few that, people. It's that nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but the idea, and I'm being extreme on purpose to try yeah. and illustrate the point, but what will happen is you'll have someone who will say, oh, yeah, I can take on that project. I've got downtime. Right. That's right, because they don't feel overwhelmed. Yeah, but they only have five hours of downtime, and this project is going to take 20 hours of downtime. And we did an episode a while back where you mentioned that you love to test people's metal and see their breaking points so you know where that is, which is great advice, but we don't usually do that, or businesses don't usually test the metal until it matters. Now we've got this huge investment, this huge project that we're working on, and now I want to test your metal? 
Like, mm, no, I should have tested your metal on something that didn't matter if it yeah. completely fell apart. Uh, right. And so we don't we don't understand capacity. We we have you know overconfidence in our own abilities, overconfidence that everything's going to work out correctly, and and so when when you're looking, begin with the end in mind. That's kind of what I'm talking about here. Is to say. Okay, have you thought about those, you know, those unintended consequences? Right. The, uh, what, what, what is the, uh, the wheel again? Implication. Implication wheel. wheel. Yeah. Have you, have you done an exercise like an implication wheel where you start looking at all the shoot-offs, all the discovered moves, if you're a chess player, that right. are now popping up, making this a really interesting cocktail of, right. of innovation? Yeah. Um, you, you know, as you were talking about the innovation and, well, I, there's so much to it. And, and when we talk about innovation, sometimes we generally think just tech, right? I'm in tech, I'm developing this or whatever else. But even if I'm innovating a process inside of my organization to try to streamline things to make it more efficient, uh, it still takes resources and time and I think people forget that and don't budget for it and along with any time you have the variable of a human mm-hmm. uh, whether you like it or not humans are unpredictable you think they are but they're just not <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so if you talk to any manager they're always going to tell you what's the hardest part of your job and they're going to say people oh yeah oh yeah it's yeah. it's not and if it's not employees it's customers you know if it's but it's so that people variable in there complicates the whole innovation process as well. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you think about the bigger picture, you, you have to be saying, hey, look, we're not, but I think too many people get focused on the, on the product versus the ancillary pieces that are all attached to it that are really causing the problems, right? Yeah. And so if, you, if you're not taking the time to, you know, as you talk about this one, you know, as you're, uh, looking at the moves and the other possibilities and the other strings that are attached to that project, then it's really easy to get into that and be like, oh, this is miserable. We just need to cut it, right? Or, mm. or uh, you know, if we could just get rid of this one, we probably could accomplish it, right? So, um, but a lot of that stuff, if you would take the time in the beginning, like, you know, you're suggesting to, to look and ponder and analyze. Uh, I think when those come up, at least you know that it's coming. It's a possibility and you have an idea uh, of how you're going to deal with it versus being caught totally off guard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's an excellent point. So I kind of want to take that and springboard into another thing that I think is important to understand. Um, And that is this idea of, we always tend to overpromise, underdeliver, mm-hmm. and we need to focus on the underpromise, overdeliver, which right. is the better better model. Right. And I've been trying to. So I've been on kind of a personal journey to figure out why why is that always the problem? Why is there not a good solution? Why do so many businesses, big successful companies, are always overpromising, underdelivering? You know, you look at construction projects and it's like, how many construction projects they come and there's like, okay, we finished two weeks early and <laughs> we, we, we were 5 million under budget 
or is it more like, I know we said we were going to be done three months ago. Uh, this is where the costs are creeping up. And, and it happens on big projects that have professionals that have thought through all that, you know, they've yeah. done the begin with the end in mind. They have a plan in place. The plan makes sense. It's been signed off by multiple people. And so I've been on this personal journey to try and understand why, why are humans so bad at this? And one of the things that I have discovered on my personal journey is that we don't understand the different personality types and the different roles of those personality types. Mm -hmm. And this is something that when you're doing an innovation, I think you want, no, I don't think, I know you need to put this into play. And so I'm going to put some tangibles here of what I'm talking about. If I've got a salesperson, and they don't have to be by title a salesperson, they can be the CEO. CEOs are salespeople, mm -hmm. and they're always selling the company or selling a vision or something like that. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it it could be a uh, you know a production manager it could be the sales whoever yeah. is championing championing the idea is what I'm classifying as the salesperson. Okay. The salesperson is going to overpromise. By right. by nature, they are going to they're, they're always optimistic. They're always optimistic. They see and they have to be because you know if I came to you with an innovation, and I said, "All right, we're probably going to lose money on this. <laughs> it's going to be very difficult. It's going to tie up our cash flow for the next two years." But there is a chance, but there is a chance. <laughs> no, you're never going That's to right. buy off on it. <laughs> and, and, and so and, and so, I'm going to put this into some categories. I'm going to say you've got the salespeople, you've got the investors, okay. and then you've got the builders, okay. the ones that are actually making the innovation right. happen. And there can be some overlap. You could have you know people that are both the visionary and putting up right. the money. These don't have to be separate roles. Excuse me, separate people, but they are separate roles, right? And so... If you're going to go down an innovative role, you have to have a salesperson. Someone's got to get everyone excited about this and keep everyone excited about this. When it's no longer exciting, you know, when it's nothing but problems and headache and too expensive, you need to have someone that can say, no, guys, we still want to do this. You know, and they really need to be selling to the builders. See, that right. that's where I have seen the disconnect is the salespeople usually are, they're selling to the customers. They need to be selling to the builders primarily. Just, yeah, just as much. Yeah. And then the builders, see the funny thing about builders, builders are the ones that are just like, I don't know. I don't know when this is going to happen. You know, like they, they don't want to sell it. They don't want to oversell it. And right. so they're naturally, you know, they, they get called the stick in the mud or, you know, the other things that I'm not going to repeat on this show. <laughs> and, you know, we as human beings, we look at that as the enemy of the project. We don't look at that as an asset. Mm -hmm. And we need to make that an asset. We need to say, okay, these people are actually helping the project move along. Now, on my personal journey, I can't figure out how to get them to come to the table more because their negative nature is like, I don't want to go to the table. You know, I don't want to talk with that guy. Well, but by nature, they're kind of like a mad scientist. I Just let me create. Just let me do what I do. Yeah. And don't bother me. Yeah. Right? Well, at, that brings up another problem of innovation is supposed to be creative. How do you put deadlines on creativity? 
You know, how do you put costs on creativity? Hey, I want you to paint a work of art, <laughs> but I want you to use these colors and I want you to use, you know, this shape and this form. And you're like, it's paint by numbers now. There's nothing innovate. As soon as you tell me everything I have to do, but you know, if you let me do what I want, um, I, I remember we had kind of a funny experience when my wife and I got engaged. Uh, so I got her this engagement ring and the uh, jeweler, jewel, jeweler, ugh, I'm having a hard time with some of these words today. The jeweler that we went to, um, we decided to inset some diamonds. Uh, off, you know, So there's the main diamond, and then we we're going to put some, some diamonds on the band. And he told us, he's like, I've got this guy. He's going to do beautiful work. You're going to love it. I can't give you a deadline because he will never give us deadlines. <laughs> like he'll just kind of get to it when he gets to it. And could be married before you get it. <laughs> yeah. It was, that's, that's honestly what he's telling us. And, yeah. and you know, when it came back, the work was phenomenal. Like he had done amazing work, but yeah. don't rush me. Don't give me deadlines. You know, like I'll get to it when I, when I feel like getting to it. Yeah. And, and so the, the, the point that I would make for the listeners, for this show, the point that I'm going to make is to say, when you're dealing with innovation, you're dealing with different personality types. You have to have them all. You, you, you can't, That's right. if, if you kick the builders out because they're the stick in the mud, no one will build it. And, and I've seen that. I've seen companies that have great ideas and nothing ever happens. And I'm like, well, why isn't it, you know, it's like, well, because the visionary got bored after two months. And yeah, you, yeah you do. You have to understand the different temperaments of those individuals. Man, I'm gonna just beat this mic to <laughs> death today. I don't know why. I just keep. You might have to cut that one out. <laughs> but, but yeah, when when uh, if you don't have those different temperaments in there because of their skill sets and their ability to do things, I mean, salespeople, great negotiations, things like that. You know, I need them at a table at a certain point in time. Builders, you have to have them there. Uh, managers, in a way, because they keep projects on task. You help other, you know, everybody understand roles. All right, let's just get this done today. You know what I mean? They're, they're great organizers. Yeah. Um, you know, and then, of course, you know, just the visionary. Without, you know, you talk, you kind of put the visionary in a salesperson role, which may or may not be. But, but that bigger picture of... What do we really need to accomplish? What great good is this going to do? How is it going to benefit us, society, our community, however you define that? Mm -hmm. But you're right. As soon as you take one of those out, if you're stuck with all these builders, you can't sell it because none of them tend to be great salespeople, right? <laughs> or they're perfectionists that will never finish. Like if you don't have a manager that, that's, right. that's saying, look, get it out there. Give me an MVP, you know, yeah. minimum viable product. Give yeah. me something that I can sell. Don't just keep tinkering down in your basement. Yeah, or if we have too many salespeople and they're always over committing to everything and it's stressing everybody else out because they've created deadlines that no one can actually realistically make. Yeah. You know, so I, I can't give the right or wrong. Like I right. personally, and maybe there's a guru out there who, you know, can say, mm -hmm. this is how you set up the team and manage. I, I am not aware of one and yeah. you know, like, I, the best that's out there is understanding who those individuals are so that they're in the right place. You know, we sometimes say you know, just behind the scenes, they're in the right seat on the bus. Yeah. We don't get everyone sitting on one side of the bus. And now we're kind of soon first corner you go around, we're, we're dumped over on our side because everyone's on that side of the bus. Right. Yeah. 
Well, and I kind of look at it as like uh, marriage. How many marriage counselors are there out there? How many books are there on marriage telling you the right way to do it? And I'm like, there is not a right way. There are some things that you, you know, really should do and shouldn't do. But then there's all that in between. It's the same thing with innovation is, you know, you need a team. You know, you need to have everyone at the table. You know, you need to have communication with everyone at the table. But is there a right way to communicate? Is there a right way to put deadlines? Is there a right way to sell the vision? No. There's n- if there was, you know, I, That's right. I would write that book. Yeah. <laughs> it would be the only book we needed. Yeah. Like, so it is very relationship-based, and you just have to accept that. Yeah. Um, so another thought just tied into innovation, I guess, as we're kind of wrapping up, um, one of my final thoughts on innovation would be that uh, I, I still – Contrary to your first thoughts, I, I like the idea of budgets, but I also like the idea that, um, and probably a fix for me is, I don't know that I've done as great a job of building in those contingencies from the beginning, like we do with construction and other type of more material projects, um, even if that is just a marketing campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably my greatest takeaway that, uh, for some reason, I, I don't know why I, I, I know about it and I've done it on other ones, but I've never thought to do it in almost everything that I do because, uh, that would curb a lot of things and take stress out. And it, and I'll tell you what the beauty of contingencies are is that if you need the money, it's there, but if you don't, it frees it up for other things. You, right. You, it almost feels like a raise, if you know what I mean. Yeah. We made an additional sale because that money now is freed up to go and use for something else. Well, and how liberating it is to, you know, if, if I've got $100,000 that doesn't need to go to anything, you know, like payroll's covered, uh, you know, rent is covered, right. inventory is is covered, and I still have $100,000 sitting over there. How freeing is that to push some of these other things to the limit? Because you're like, well, it doesn't matter. I can, I can invest in a piece of equipment because if I find out that, oh, I needed an extra $10,000 to actually get this equipment to work... I'm yeah. okay because I've got some, you know, so so you can take some more risk uh, without, right. you know, jeopardizing the company. Um, so I, I want to put my own personal, I'm, I'm jumping back here for a second. So you talked about this, uh, you know, the, the, this contingency. And I want to put my own personal uh, take on this. I think in any venture, there needs to be some absolute cutoffs, and you need to put those in place before you ever jump on the venture. So I'm going to give two side examples, and then I'm going to bring it back to innovation, right? So the expression, be slow to hire and quick to fire. Right. All right. What does that imply? Well, it implies that you actually took some time on the front end to decide what you need for the company. You're taking your time to vet out people. You're really, you know, doing some good homework. But when you do make that mistake, it's about 20% of all new hires don't work out. And that's kind of a national average. So one in five, whoa, that's a big number. And so how many companies have you seen that they've got someone that they, uh, you know, they just 
knew that this person was a bad fit, but they're like, okay, we'll give them, we'll give them another chance. We'll give them another, ch-. you know, they're on their, their seventh chance. And, and I'm like, you guys just don't have the discipline to know what you, you, you know what you need to do, but you don't have the discipline to do what you need to do. And so that, that's the first example that I want to give. The second example is in any partnership, we're huge advocates of put it in writing first while you're still friends because things will yeah. go south. Yes. They will. You know, yeah. it's just a matter of time before they do go south. And so now I'm going to bring this back into contingency plans and innovation. So first off, you know, put things in, in writing when you're not emotionally attached to this project. Great, when you look at it and you advice. say, hey, you know, we, we are going to dump $50,000 into this. And if we can't make something happen after $50,000, then we're just pulling the plug. You know, and that doesn't restrict other resources. That's just saying, okay, I have one threshold that I'm not going to cross that threshold. Or I'm going to give this two years. If I can't make something happen in two years, we're going to pull the plug. And do it when you're not at 18 months, you know. Because <laughs> like, at 18 right. months, you're looking at that and you're like, okay. I, I mean, we're so oh, close. close, you know. And, and, and so, you know, that's the thing is put some standards in place before you're emotionally attached. And then uh, to that point of, you know, uh, be slow to hire, quick to fire. When you know that it's not working, you know, there's a difference between, okay, everyone's telling me that this is a bad idea, but I feel in my gut that this is the thing to do and, and I'm going to keep pushing forward. But when you feel in your gut that you're like, yeah, this is a bad idea, but I don't want to tell people that I screwed up. And so I'm going to kind of limp it along and maybe I'll get lucky because then I don't have to admit that I was an idiot. I'm like, no, put your pride aside, admit that you were an idiot, move on. Right. Uh, And that's great advice too, because too many people just, they, that, that one fiasco or something isn't quite right. uh, It weighs on them way too much and they lose their productivity. Yeah. So, I mean, I had one time, wow, we're running a little bit long here, but we're going to, we're, I got a couple things and we're, we'll wrap it up. Uh, I launched a marketing company and, you know, I was a professional business advisor who just launched a marketing company and my marketing company failed and I pulled the plug on it and I knew it had failed. Like there, we weren't three strikes you're out. We we're like five strikes you're out, you know, <laughs> and it was really hard to go back and consult businesses and just be like, hey, yeah, my business just failed, but I'm going to tell you how to do business. And so I just took the approach of, you know, I didn't try and hide it. Uh, I didn't try and dwell on it either. It just, I told people, I said, you know, even as a professional, I made mistakes and here are some of the mistakes that I made. And people respected that. Now, I don't know if maybe some, you know, some clients maybe never came back because they're like, yeah, I'm not talking to this guy anymore. That probably happened. But, you know, it it really, it really wasn't as big of a deal as it felt like it was going to be in my head. You know, people understand that it's like, yeah, you make mistakes, move on. But that's So that's an interesting point with innovation too, because sometimes with innovation, when something goes wrong or an individual makes a mistake, we immediately get rid of that individual or cut that piece out, <laughs> right? They're now really experienced. <laughs> right. That's my point. And even to the point that, you know, I jokingly, when someone makes a mistake and they come in and like, oh, I know you're going to fire me. So I'm like, no, I'm not. 
because you're going to fix it, right? Because <laughs> if I fire you, I got to fix it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so no, you're going to fix this one and you're going to make it right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But also from that, uh, a lot of things happen and it doesn't have to be an individual. It could be a number of things, but, but humans, we relate with humans more in this example, but as they fix that one, they gain more experience Two, a level of respect is established three. They know that, Hey, look, the mistake isn't what I'm concerned about. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, can we overcome it? Right. Right. And so if innovation, if you, if you can't learn to get through some of that stuff, you shouldn't even start down the road to start with because you, you'll just burn bridges and have too much frustration. And then it'll just be a disaster realizing that if we're going to go down the road of innovation, mistakes are going to happen. Right. And part of our contingency plan is, is that that's okay because we can fix them. Right. Yeah. And if you're building your team, you know, I, I, I love looking at like how many uh, how many times Michael Jordan was given the game ball for a yeah. winning shot and missed. Yeah, yeah it it's a lot. <laughs> missed a lot more than he made. <laughs> you know, and, and and people still gave him the game ball. That's right. You know, because they're like, hey, you might make a mistake, but you're a great player, and yeah. so we're gonna put confidence in you. Right. So, the last point that I want to hit on is fear. Innovation is scary. Yeah. And um, I, 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 I want to look at this from a, a couple different angles. Um, well, let me, let me put it into this context. So one of my, uh, one of my hobbies that, that I enjoy, I actually uh, drug you out on this a couple times, is some rappelling. Uh, I just found a great place we need to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, so, so we'll do w- what's known as canyoneering, where you'll rappel down into these sandstone slot canyons that are typical of the area where we live here. And uh, it's really an amazing experience, right? Well, it's so interesting how many people are afraid of that rappel. They get on the rope and the fascinating thing is that the rope has so many redundancies of safety. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, you are, if, done, if set up correctly, you are safer on that rope than, you, than the guy who's not on the rope, you know, watching kind the person. Over yeah. the edge. And, and, mm-hmm. and so, but people get on that rope and they don't trust the rope. And, yeah. it, you know, you, you, you have to allow your brain to trust the rope. Well, the same thing is with innovation. You have to trust the innovation and you have to understand, yes, there are people who have failed in innovation, but you have to trust your team. You have to trust your plan. You have to trust that you've got resources. You have to trust that you've got expertise. And I've seen a lot of innovation that has stagnated because people don't trust themselves or their team or their situation or whatever the case may be. And there's nothing, you know, when I get someone on, on that rappelling rope, after I've told them, hey, look how safe you are, there are some people who just won't go down. You know, I've, I've taught them, I've worked with them, and they just won't go down that rope. And I'm like, there's nothing I can do after a certain point. You know, at, at some point, your brain has to allow you to, you know, to trust that that, that rope is fully secure. And so I, I would just say, you know, when you're dealing with the fear of innovation, number one, if you're not that afraid, it's probably not that innovative, you know. And number two, when you are afraid, 
you've got to put some trust in yourself, your team, your plan. Yeah, I like that. So, good enough we wrap up with that? I'm good. Okay, so... Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can see all of our episodes at marketingmanagementmoney.com. Uh, we've got a whole library uh, there for you. Uh, you can check out the YouTube channel, uh, Marketing Management Money, or uh, Instagram, MMM underscore small biz. Uh, you can see our uh, content on jazzjune.com forward slash MMM. So check us out, reach out to us with any of your comments or feedback, and thank you so much for tuning in. See you.